Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today, I'm joined by one of the leading strikers in Premier League history as Andy Cole opens up on the issue of racism in football and the wider world. Matt Slater is here to explain how Manchester City hope to overturn their two-year Champions League ban and what's holding up the proposed takeover of Newcastle United. Our Liverpool writer James Pearce will give us his take on why Timo Werner is not on his way to Anfield. And Amy Lawrence reveals all about her exclusive interview with a certain Arsene Wenger. To read their work and plenty more as we build up to the return of Premier League, EFL, Spanish and Italian football, make sure you subscribe and download the Athletic app if you haven't already. Access is free for 30 days by going to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman. Well, there's somebody that I've really wanted to speak to on our podcast for a long time now. He's one of the greatest Premier League strikers of all time and also one of the most decorated. He played for Newcastle and Manchester United, among many others in the top two divisions of English football and had an illustrious career also represented his country. It's Andrew Cole, and I'm very privileged to say he joins us now. Andrew, first of all, I want to know how you are, because as many of our listeners will know, you've been battling with health problems from a physical and mental perspective um, that have come about as a result of a kidney transplant that you had. And that means it's really a day-to-day thing. So are you okay? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Uh, as I say, it's worth one. It's Easter as it comes, you know, no two days are the same. I think for me, it's just trying to half accept where I'm at and just trying to get on with it to the best of my ability. And where are you at? My problem with the illness I have, you know, is just trying to accept it. And I'm not good at accepting things, you know, especially when it's obviously something I, I can't really do anything about. So mentally, it's like, come on. You know, um, try your best to rely on other people, which I'm not very good at. Um, I think my mum would definitely tell you that I'm not very good <laughs> at relying on people. Uh, I like to do things my way. And um, I, I, majority of the time, I end up getting frustrated with myself. You know, if I want to do things that I can't, I can't do so. I mean, um, that's where it comes a little bit difficult. You've now moved back down south. You're in the north following your playing days in the Manchester area, but you're back down south now, and it also must have been quite difficult around the COVID restrictions, which I presume would have been a bit tougher for you with the f- physical issues. Yeah, I, I think that, that's been really hard. Because uh, I was kind of like, not kind of, I was locked down for about 11 weeks. 11 weeks, and during that period, had my daughter for a week, which was, that was fantastic. My daughter's been locked down as well, so having her for a week was really good. Before that, naturally, I was just by myself, you know, speaking to my mates on the phone or via Zoom, and then after that, it's the same thing. Nothing can ever be better than being around people. Be, being around positive people who just want to see you well. I mean, that's that's what I really miss. Has it made you lonely, this period? Uh, you know what, it has made me, yeah, at times it's made me lonely, but at times it's made me look back, reflect uh, on my life in general, what I've been fortunate to achieve playing football, you know, um, my illness and the people that I have around me. And in the, these 11 weeks, have made, really made me have the opportunity to look and reflect on all these things. When, when you spend so much time by yourself, you know, your mind runs away with you and you have many different thoughts and, you know, why did I do this? Why did I do that? I should have done this, should have done that. I'm happy I did this, happy I've done that. So, yeah, I think that this period has been really good. And I, at least I can come out of this period when, when we finally do come out of it and say, look, Andrew, you can, you can actually do it by yourself. You've proved that now the last 11, 12 weeks, this is going to be coming up to 12 weeks. You can prove it by yourself. You can do it, yeah. But ultimately, you know you, you need good, solid people around you who are prepared to help you with the challenge of moving forward in life. You talk there about perspective and reflection. I want to broaden it out to what's going on in the world at the moment. One of the first things you ever said to me was, 
I say things as they are. I speak my mind. No one tells me what to say. So when you look around the world at the moment and you see the George Floyd situation or you see the situation in Bristol over the weekend with Edward Colston, a city that you lived in for a period, can you just talk to me about what you're feeling at the moment about world events? It's crazy at the moment. Absolutely crazy. I mean, when, when, when it all started last week with George Floyd, I think my, my my initial emotions were like everybody else, you know, shocked. I was horrified. That just made me look back and obviously think about my parents when they first come to England. And my my, my dad has never really spoke to me about what he's, what he went through when he first came to England or anything like that. But then um, we we went away. We went away. To Jamaica, obviously, that's where my, my parents are from. And I was with my dad and, you know, first time they ever really spoke about anything that he ever went through. And it was only a short conversation. He explained to me one scenario. And I, I felt his pain straight away. I felt my dad's pain straight away. You know, and I, I looked at myself then and I said to myself, Jesus, man, and I've been such a pain with my dad for how many years? Yeah, when I was younger, I was a pain. I was actually terrible, my dad. Yeah, and I look at it. I said, "I under, yeah, I understand. I understand what you've been through. I don't think I could ever, ever have done it myself. It must have been so, so horrible for my parents to have gone through that, and to see it still happening now. Oh man, it's it's painful. It's painful. It hurts a lot. It hurts a hell of a lot. And that's why I respect him even more so now." due to the fact I know what he's actually been through to giving me the opportunity to be sitting there on this podcast with you now. I know. And I've, I've felt his pain, like I said beforehand. And like I said now, because I'm a lot older, I'm a lot wiser. You know, when I was younger, I, was, I mean, I was a bit of a tear away with him. And, you know, we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. But I understand that. I understand totally what he was trying to say to me then. I never believed I'd ever come across. Because naturally I'm young, I'm growing up. And I, come on, Pops, man, things have changed, they've changed, they've changed. Yeah, they, they might have changed in whereby it wasn't, it wasn't so um, obvious, you know, but it was still there. You have talked about what you faced at Nottingham Forest, uh, use of a horrible nickname, Chalky. <laughs> Did you experience other things at other clubs within your career can you tell us anything about that in in the spirit of honesty in, in the spirit of I, I think when, when you're growing up yeah as, as a young footballer you I mean this this wasn't just labeled at me this is labeled at maturity young black aspiring players when I was growing up you know I mean that they don't perform when it's cold um they've got a chip on the shoulder growing up then that was part and past of it we rolled it out we rolled it out and to a certain extent, yeah, of course we accepted it because that's what we had to do. But ultimately, we were already told by our parents that whatever you aspire to do, especially in football, you know, you have to be better than your counterpart. I mean, my dad used to say that to me all the time when I was a kid. You know, you're going to be, have to be better than your counterpart, not one time better, two times three, four times better than your counterpart. You know, those are the things I said, like, say my dad, oh, no, 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 that's rubbish, Pops, that's rubbish. He said to me, no, 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 you have, you will have to be better. And I get it. I get it. I, of course I got it. Only when I got older did I get it and understand it. Now, when, when I was younger, because I never saw it when I was younger, but as you get older, you face it. What, so you saw it in the 90s and 2000s at the big Premier League clubs you played for? Mm. You get a young, more younger parts of your career. As, as I got older, it, I'll be honest, it was hardly anything, if anything. You know, accepted in the dressing room, unbelievable, punters, everything. So for me personally, as, it got, as I got older and more mature, it, it wasn't accepted, it wasn't tolerated. When I was younger... That was part and parcel of it. We're better than that. We're, we're better than arrogant or a chip on your shoulder. 
that was just the way everyone seemed to look at young black footballers then. You and I have heard people using those phrases about players in the modern game, Raheem yep. Sterling, for example. It still exists. Of course it still, still exists. And that, that, that's, what I, that's what I'm trying to say. It still exists, but the, the way they will try and uh, speak about it now or say it, you know, it's totally different to when I was a kid because it was more blatant when I was a kid. Raheem Sterling gave an interview to the BBC last night in which he talked about the only disease right now is the racism that we're fighting. He's been very vocal on the issue, very proactive. What have you felt about him? And you can clearly relate to things that he's been talking about. I'll take my heart off to that that kid. I, I remember the Euros. It was the 2016 Euros. Yes. And um, England didn't have a, a particular good tournament. It was the Iceland defeat. Yes. And it, what, what upset me more than anything, you know, the flack that kid got, it was absolutely beyond me how he took so much flack. And then the way they just kept going from, kept going from, kept going from him. You have to ask the question, why? Why? Four years later, he has turned it around by his playing performances, you know, being vocal on this racial issue, uh, getting his head down and playing football to the best of his ability. Not so long ago, they wanted to pull him up regarding the tattoo on, he had on his leg. You know, that is his choice. That is his choice, what he tattoos on his leg, arm, wherever. That's his choice. He has his reasons for doing it. You know, they try to decimate him for that as well. But every time they try to decimate, all he does now is bounce back. So now he bounces back, yeah, by playing football to the best of his ability and he has a voice now. And people are prepared to listen to him. You've got to ask the question, why? Why did you start with that nonsense in the first place? You know? So I, I love I love what he's been doing. I love that he's been so vocal. I love that he speaks his mind on an issue that a lot of people won't speak about. You know, I don't think he's, he's, he's been brilliant. If we're to be proactive, and you and I have talked privately in a very proactive way and how we can not only reflect on the past but look to the future in a positive way, do you think what's happening at the moment right now in the world, I mentioned the USA, I mentioned Bristol, I mentioned, I didn't mention London, but it's happening all over the world in many parts. Is this a turning point? And we've asked this question so many times over the years, but some people, Michael Johnson, the the Olympic sprinter, says he's never seen an anti-racism movement quite like what we're seeing at the moment. Do you think this is a turning point or not? I hope and pray so. I hope and pray. We've had so many false storms. Enough is enough. Andrew, thank you so much for your time and for being so honest with sharing your views. Uh, Above all else, keep well and um, we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. No problems. So Timo Werner, one of the most talked about names in world football over the last few days. It seemed he could be on course to sign for Liverpool, if not this summer, then maybe in a year's time or at some point in the future. But then along came Chelsea. You can get all of the details on what I'm talking about, the inside track on the deal by heading over to The Athletic now. James Pierce writes about Liverpool for The Athletic and he joins us now to share his insights on Werner and all things Liverpool. James, tell us a little bit more about the situation at Anfield in relation to Werner, did they pull out of the deal? Was it not quite right for them at this moment in time? Give us a bit of an explanation on that. In the end, it came down to they just couldn't make it work financially. I think it it underlines the impact of the coronavirus pandemic, even on a a club the size of Liverpool. Timo Werner had been trapped for for a long time since his days at, at Stuttgart he'd been on certainly on Liverpool's radar and you know Klopp had made no secret of his admiration for him I think anyone who'd seen Timo Werner interviewed in recent months you know clearly the feeling was mutual but 
you know, Chelsea were there willing to meet his release clause. Uh, in the end, you know, Liverpool weren't prepared to do that. They, um, you know, they, they just felt that in the current climate, when you add the fee and the wages together, you're looking at probably a hundred million pounds. And this, this would have been for a player who would have been uh, certainly a, a substitute and as cover for Liverpool's front three initially. We understand that Jurgen Klopp met with Timo Werner uh, in Berlin in late February and then there was also a conversation between them around Easter time. They've been in regular contact around this period with pleasantries also via WhatsApp. But who actually made this decision? Was it FSG, the owners of Liverpool, or was it Klopp or somebody in between? The three major figures when it comes to decisions of this nature, and, and, and they are Jurgen Klopp, Michael Edwards, the sporting director, and Mike Gordon, the, the Fenway Sports Group president, who um, is essentially responsible for the, the day-to-day running of the club. So all transfer decisions need you know, the green light from, from all three of those individuals. Uh, in my information is they were Ultimately, they were all in agreement looking at the financial landscape. It was just one they couldn't press the button on and, and, and justify. I think you know, Klopp went on record to, I think it was an interview with Sky Germany in um, over the weekend and, and said, you know, how do you justify spending you know, that kind of money on a player? Um, when at the same time you're asking your, your current players to take salary cuts, which you know, those delicate discussions are ongoing. So, um, yeah, it was it was very much a collaborative decision that they came to in, in, eventually that they, they just couldn't proceed with it. Do you think many football fans, and I include us in that, quite grasp the full extent of this financial crisis that football is staring at and, and as an explanation as to why so few big money deals will be done this summer and potentially in windows to come. I think there is a bit of a disconnect with you know when you actually speak to people in these in these clubs about just how much of a seismic impact this crisis has had. I, I don't think uh, a lot of people fully understand the impact. I think a lot of people look at Liverpool's last accounts for example and, and look well hang on a minute you know your your revenues are over you know half a half a billion pound a year, you made a profit of 30 odd million before tax, you know, you didn't really spend much last summer. So, you know, there must be, you know, big bundles of cash there waiting to be spent. But, you know, the, the reality is that Liverpool's wage bill has absolutely rocketed in recent years, past that 300 million pound mark, pretty much on on parity now with, with Manchester City. And, and it hasn't dropped at all during the crisis. And, I think the the big thing for this deal for me was it just underlined the different business models. You know, Liverpool is very much run like a business. FSG don't put money in; they don't take money out. It, the, the books have to be balanced. Um, whilst at Chelsea, of course, there's Roman Abramovich who's prepared to prop things up and also to take greater risks. I think that's the that's the thing as well in this climate. And Chelsea, you'd have to say you're in a position where they need to take greater risks because they're they're playing catch up to a greater degree. While I think Liverpool, their hierarchy, when they took a step back, they looked at where the club's at. You know, they um, yes, they probably do need you know more cover for the front three, but you know this wasn't an absolute necessity for Liverpool. You know, they've got arguably the best front three in Europe. This would have been a luxury signing who would have been coming in to provide cover, and um, yeah, ultimately they uh, they they just couldn't justify it. A fee in the region of £50 million for cover and luxury, as you put it, doesn't seem to make much sense, especially if the Africa Cup of Nations is pushed back or cancelled in the winter. Exactly, yeah. And I think that clearly that is a a factor as well. It it looks increasingly likely like AFCON will will get pushed back. I think the the qualifying rounds are are a fair bit behind now due to COVID. So... um, yeah, I mean that would have been that would have been huge to have lost Mane and, and Salah for up to six weeks at such a pivotal stage of the season. Um, but if yeah, if that doesn't happen, that that eases that headache. I think I think where where I do have sympathy for supporters is I think there's been a long kind of standing feeling that there there probably is too much of a drop off in quality between Liverpool's current front three and what they've got waiting in the wings with, you know, Origi and Shakiri and of course Minamino only arrived in January and they'll hope for a lot more to come from him. So I think that that's why I think that for fans there was this huge excitement about Werner because, you know, they would have had that absolute elite backup, which um, you know, up to now they haven't needed. But, you know, that has relied heavily on, you know, how robust that front three are and, and staying fit and healthy. Do you think there will be any signings at Liverpool? this summer or will it be a, a window without business 
Um, certainly, I think in terms of major deals, uh, I think as as things stand at the moment, you can you can rule that out. I don't, you know, the, the, even since the weekend, you've seen speculation rumbling on about Jaden Sancho, and you think, well, you know, hang on a minute, take a step back, and think, well, they're not going to justify you know, a 53, 54 million pound outlay for Timo Werner. You're not going to pay almost double that for for Sancho. So I think, yeah, Liverpool will not be in the market for those kind of players. I think I think later on in the window, we might see a, a couple of additions to the squad. But I think even that is probably dependent to a large degree on what happens with potential outgoings because, um, you know, Liverpool do have some players who are surplus to requirements. You know, I think someone like Zerdin Shakiri is highly likely to move on this summer, of course, They'll be desperately trying to find a new club for, for Loris Karius after his time at, at Besiktas broke down. And and then you've got players like Harry Wilson and Marco Gruich, you know, players who I think before this crisis, Liverpool would have been looking at those as certainly Wilson and Gruich maybe generating 40 million, 45 million between them when you look at some of the some of the deals that Michael Edwards has, has agreed for for fringe players in recent years. Yet, you know, I, I don't think those kind of numbers are realistic now. There's a big decision there as well for Liverpool. Do you do you take maybe reduced fees or do you actually look at the longer term and say, actually, we're better off keeping hold of those players as squad players for another 12 months on the basis that, um, you know, even if even if they don't have a big part to play in the first team next season, um, their value will uh, will be higher once we resume to we return to a bit of normality in the transfer market. Meanwhile, our colleague Greg O'Keefe reported exclusively on The Athletic over the weekend that the mayor of Liverpool wants the upcoming Merseyside derby to take place at Goodison on Sunday the 21st of June. We understand that Everton want to host the game. What's Liverpool's position on it? Because there's still this lingering question of whether it will take place at a neutral venue. Yeah, well, Liverpool's position is is very much that that they believe the game should take place at Goodison Park, just like they believe that Liverpool's remaining home matches in the Premier League should should uh, take place at Anfield. So, um, yeah, both clubs I know are, are working hard behind the scenes to to try and ensure that 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 does that does happen. Um, you know, it's a real positive sign that. Liverpool Mayor Joe Anderson has changed his tune. Um, you know, it was only probably four or five weeks ago that he was talking about the resumption of the Premier League being a non-starter, and you know, said he feared a farcical situation with fans, thousands of them. He said congregating outside Anfield, which I know at the time really angered senior figures at Liverpool because they, they felt that was, you know, that was that was unfair, and that their fans would not would would not go down that route, and that they could get the message across with. With Klopp and senior players urging fans to stay away and respect the social distancing and, and lockdown measures, and uh, yeah, thankfully I think you know a bit further down the line, Joe Anderson has seen sense, and of course his opinion does carry a lot of weight. So now we've got to wait for uh, the safety advisory group. We're going to meet early this week, as it is now. It'll be at the back end of the week, giving the two clubs more time to to explain exactly how they intend to do their bit to keep fans away from Goodison on the day itself. James, get polishing that trophy and uh, wrapping the (laughs) ribbons and we'll speak to you very soon. Thanks as always. Cheers. So Manchester City's appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport is underway. I'm joined by The Athletic's Matt Slater to outline what we might expect and what it could mean for their rival clubs. Matt, thanks very much for joining us. Just remind our listeners why City are appealing against this ban. They're appealing it for a pretty simple reason, really. Not qualifying for Europe for for two years would have a massive impact on the club, their finances... You know their medium-term future, the makeup of their squad, perhaps Pep Guardiola's, you know, future. You know, access to the Champions League really is 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 what is at stake here. It is the rocket fuel that 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 boosts these elite clubs. It's probably worth about 100 million pounds a year in in prize money broadcast, but also the the matchday revenues, the 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 boost you get in every sponsorship deal as well. So an awful lot at stake. Uh, if Manchester City are unable to compete in Europe for the next two seasons. And in terms of what it means for everybody else, well, look, Man City are currently sitting in second place in the Premier League table. That means they, as things stand, will be qualifying for the Champions League again next season if they can win this case. If they remain in the top four and they can't overturn this, well, suddenly fifth comes into 
into play, and that's Manchester United. It couldn't be it couldn't uh-huh. be any more <laughs> delicious than that, could it? But but also then have knock on effects for the Europa League as well. Of course, Manchester City won the League Cup, so they have qualified for Europa League via that. That would go to the next best place team in the Premier League. So look, lots, lots of implications for this. And of course, if Manchester City lose and are weakened for the next couple of seasons, well, look, you know, there's a there's a an enormous sort of kind of reshuffle um, of of the sort of powers that be in in not just the Premier League but sort of European football. So you know, huge consequences. Uh, at, at stake here. I think it's quite important for us to point out that this appeal has two main pillars. One of them is an inflated sponsorship deal or deals, and the second is cooperation with the investigation into this. And underneath that all is that there was a previous case involving Manchester City too. Yeah, I mean, perhaps we should just sort of rewind a tiny bit. So this uh, all stems from about a week's worth. I think was it four days special that the Spiegel did in a German magazine did in November 2018. Uh, they got hold of some hacked emails, a lot of hacked emails from a Portuguese hacker called Rui Pinto. The Spiegel reported a quite, quite staggering amount of allegations about Manchester City inflating sponsorship deals, hiding costs. Um, the basic premise being that um, deals like Etihad and other uh, UAE-based companies weren't really providing the money. In fact, the money was being funneled. It was coming via Sheikh Mansour, the club's ownership, as a, as a way to get around UEFA's financial fair play rules. A remarkable amount of allegations based on emails between executives. Manchester City you know, reacted, as you can imagine, with, with real anger denied any any wrongdoing, always have implied that, um, you know, these emails are taken out of context, but, you know, have often, have also pointed to the fact that these emails are stolen. They've already been to CAS once to have this case thrown out before it even started. Uh, that didn't work. But lots of shade was sort of thrown on UEFA's process. UEFA, you know, stood up to that, but there's an awful, awful lot of, of, of bad blood already you know between these two organizations that to be fair that the UEFA organization the UEFA process is run independently uh it's run by their club financial control body and yes there is there is significant previous here because Manchester City were found guilty of breaching financial fair play rules back in 2014 and agreed a settlement uh, that um, they were then released from because they were deemed to have uh, met the terms of that settlement. When that happened, they had two-thirds of their huge fine returned. I think the firm, the fine was £49 million. They had to play in Europe with squad restrictions for a while. But look, as of 2016, it did look like Manchester City had been punished. They never liked it. They never agreed with that punishment but they accepted it they accepted it sort of begrudgingly and it did appear to be behind us of course these emails these stolen emails opened it all up again so just remind people of city's defense we're slightly guessing as to city's defense i mean they have hinted at things all the way through the process you know they've been they haven't issued many statements but their statements when they have issued them have been you know pretty robust and and the, the key one that came after February, when you know UEFA did announce that this there was a two-year ban, which you know, which which was the, the most extreme sanction they've ever given, plus a, a thirty million euro fine, was that the uh, the city were going to win that they that they have irrefutable evidence to to win, and when they get to an independent, a truly independent body like CAS, they will you know they'll 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 have their day in their in court, and it will it will go in their favour. What we don't know for sure is the basis of that defence. Now, are they going to go into a court and say, well, look, here here are the other emails that say that that one was totally out of context. You've, you know, De Spiegel and Football Leaks have chosen the worst possible case they can assemble. And they're ignoring the fact that, you know, a day later, this email came that completely reversed the course of, of that action or, you know, reveals it to be a joke or out of context or just something that was floated. And that, I think, was the suggestion that a lot of us got. City have never, ever produced that stuff. What they did do at CAS in 2019 with this sort of preliminary hearing was they tried to attack the process, as you say, 
that um, you know that, that UEFA had kind of rushed to this judgment, hadn't followed its own rules. There was this 2014 agreement, and you know you can't unpick it because X, Y, and Z. And they cited a, a similar-looking case involving AC Milan, and then they also um, almost went for the kind of the character. They went, they they, they almost played the, the man as well, and they sort of talked about the amount of leaks that had apparently come from the UEFA side to sort of suggest that you've got it in for us. That didn't work in that forum. That's mainly because Cass sort of said, "Well, look, we're supposed to be the final appeal body. You know, you can't, you, you know, you, you can't come to us before UEFA have made their ruling. But by all means, come come back and see us." You know, once once you have that ruling, and we can have this argument then, and and you know that's where we are this week. What we're going to get here is everything. We're going to get an all out, all guns blazing assault on the nature of FFP. Does it work? Is it fair? Does it do what it's sort of you know meant to do? They're going to just throw the lot at this and see what sticks. It was widely reported that Lord David Panic would be leading City's defence. Uh, my understanding is that that's not true. He he will not be involved in this particular hearing. He will, however, be used by Manchester City on a subsequent hearing when the Premier League look into whether Manchester City have breached their own financial rules. Are we expecting an enormous sort of legal team Yes, I think is the short answer. Again, we have some evidence. We have that November 2019 uh, preliminary CAS hearing where I think Man City sent something like eight barristers to uh, Luzanne because that was that was actually heard in person. And UEFA sent two. Um, of course, there's the you know there's the infamous email, the infamous yeah. hacks email from Caldin uh, Mubarak where he says, "Well, I'd rather spend whatever it was, I can't fifty million now, pounds, 50 million, 50 million on on the top fifty lawyers over ten ever years, except <laughs> yeah, than ever accept defeat to UEFA." But look, UEFA aren't going to come to this, you know, in any way undermanned. I think they know that perhaps they have taken Cass hearings too lightly in the past and there have been a few defeats i mentioned the psg one before i think the nature of this one though goes to the heart of ffp is ffp as a principle going to survive uh, is it going to adapt i think it's going to adapt anyway to be honest i think you know the the coronavirus crisis will will, will see some changes to ffp i think some of them are already in train but if city win and get this overturned. I think FFP is finished, and I think UEFA know that, and that is why they 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 have to at least get a partial win here. Um, there is some uh, wriggle room, of course, in uh, going to a two-year ban. Would a one-year ban um, satisfy both parties? I don't know. How long are we expecting this to take, and what sort of form will it be um, conducted in? Well, they're doing it a uh, conference call. You know, the CAS hasn't actually opened up for business. It's in Switzerland. It's based in Lausanne. Three days of hearing. That's pretty long. That's, you know, only the really big cases, the massive doping cases, you know, Casta Semenya's case against the IAAF, Sun Yang, Chinese swimmer against um, the Swimming Federation. Those, you know, really big, significant cases, you know, go, get multiple day hearings. And when you look at those big ones, what tends to happen is, particularly if they're time sensitive. And I think this one is time sensitive because we've got the Champions League resuming, hopefully at some point, um, probably sort of September-ish. Um, you know, people on all sides will want uh, a hearing, a, a verdict. I think we should get something, uh, so where are we now? Mid-June, perhaps a month, perhaps the end of July. And then they often take a little bit longer to then publish the written Documents, which you know can 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 easily be a hundred plus pages, because that's the thing that's got to stand the test of time. The Premier League will be watching this with interest because of their own situation. Yeah, they do. They have they have, as we know, financial fair play rules of their own. The 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 numbers involved are different, so it has been suggested, and I think it's a perfectly reasonable suggestion that it looks difficult, even if you were to say Manchester City. And again, I, we need to stress that Manchester City deny this, overstated their sponsorship income to you know the maximum effect. And um, you were then to knock that off, if you like, their, their income. It, it, it still looks like Man City might just sort of sneak in underneath the, the, the bar, if you like, and, and not have 
a purely financial fair play issue to answer at Premier League level. However, there's, I think, a tough, a tougher one for them to face. Uh, and that's just to do with being honest and being and, and dealing with um, the Premier League in good faith. And, and again, it goes to that sort of cooperation element to all the rules. The, the Premier League licenses clubs to take part in European club competition on behalf of UEFA. Now, if it can be proven that Manchester City haven't been entirely honest in their submissions to the Premier League going back several years, 2012 to 2016, well, they could be in trouble. Well, you've given us loads there, Matt, but we're not done with you just yet because Newcastle fans are anxiously waiting to hear news on the proposed takeover of their club. And you've written a fantastic explainer on the complexities surrounding the uh, Saudi Arabia situation, the TV rights, the huge dilemma that the Premier League uh, are facing here. Can you just explain the a very complex situation in a bit of a nutshell, if possible? The stumbling block is the uh, piracy issue. And this goes back to the Saudi-Qatar bust-up three years ago. Uh, people might be aware of being sports. They're a massive broadcaster. They have um, all manner of uh, sports rights. They, they, they spend huge money on sports rights, huge money in this country, but huge money elsewhere as well. And they, they are the big player uh, in North Africa and the Middle East and a few other markets as well. But, you know, they're a really big company, very, very close partner of Premier League. For about the last three years, they've been pirated by a Saudi-based operation called Be Out Q, you know, a play on B in sports. And, um, you know, all right, in a nutshell, it does appear various reports, technical reports, various governments now agree with this, that there is some state involvement, some Saudi state involvement, to say the least, in Be Out Q. And it was a attempt to damage Qatar, damage Qatar economically. Um, and um, that's that's played out for the last few years. It's It's been largely ignored, but obviously has become incredibly important in the last few months because now a different branch of the Saudi state or the Saudi state, you know, I don't know how many branches it has, but is trying to buy a Premier League football club. And this well, poses a huge dilemma for the Premier League for a few reasons. One, the Premier League's entire success over the last three decades has been based on its close partnerships with broadcasters. It's it's deemed to do really well on piracy. If you have a problem, the Premier League will have your back. And that means shutting down pubs that are, you know, closing the windows and got a dodgy box and doing lock-ins to, you know, backing you in court. Um, the Premier League opened an office in Singapore. That was very much about putting boots on the ground to defend their broadcast partners. They have a really good relationship in this space. Lots of rights holders have been furious with Saudi and BLQ for years. The Premier League has led the charge. This is a massive dilemma at a time when the Premier League needs its broadcast partners more than ever. You know, match their income, tickets and what have you, look seriously compromised for at least a year to 18 months. The Premier League earns 70 odd percent of its money from uh, from broadcast anyway that's that proportion is going to go up it's 84 85 percent for some of the clubs anyway this is not the time to look weak on piracy this is not the time to upset one of your broadcast partners and yet here we are again round a table premier league a few months ago being really angry with saudi arabia now face to face with them as saudi arabia tries to buy a club and look, there's lots of reasons why in a different, you know, if, if things diff were different, they'd be like, brilliant. Another wealthy person's going to come in and breathe some life into one of our clubs. You know, big six, great. We'll have a big seven. We'll have a big eight. Fantastic. We'll have the most exciting competition in the world. Even better, maybe Saudi Arabia might want to um, bid for our rights in a few years' time when they become available in that region again. Fantastic. Every club would like that. But this is a massive dilemma. They to, to, to say yes without getting any concessions out of the Saudis in terms of really tackling piracy on the ground in their country and letting be in sports operate again in their country would, would just send a a bad signal to the industry. And that is why, despite many of the factors that may appear more concerning or controversial and certainly unpalatable for some people this is actually what appears to be the biggest threat to the takeover going through or not it is and 
you know, I, I've, of course, I've, you know, no one is insensitive to the, um, to the, how controversial Saudi Arabia is as a potential owner of a club. But we, we, we know about Yemen. We know about their human rights record. We know about the, the abduction and brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, you know, a dissident journalist, and, and, and you know, a, a litany, a list of things that were problematic. But however, we also know that our government has to deal with Saudi Arabia. We also know that the Premier League has had relationships with other people that might pose some challenges, other, you know, companies from countries that we, we might not agree with or see eye to eye to eye, eye to eye with on every issue. Look, it's, it's a very complicated world. The, the whole point, though, about this is it's actually in the owners and directors test. That's it. Yeah. Piracy is specifically mentioned in the owners and directors test, as is not dealing with us in good faith. So, you know, for the last few months, last few years, really, the Premier League has been trying to prosecute BLQ in Saudi Arabia and has been unable to do so. So that is a problem. It's, you know, we, we, we all might want the Premier League or any of our institutions that we care about to take these incredibly moral stances. But the whole problem with moral stances is they're very subjective. The fit and proper person's test, as it, as it was known, the and director's test, has never been a cut of your jib test. Mm. It's not like joining a country club. You know, we have an objective black and white test. Is there a court ruling? Is there something? Is, is there, have you been struck off? Are you banned as a director in this country? Can you bring your money into this country? It is a series of... It's a checkbox uh, exercise of, um, you know, do you meet any of these disqualifying criteria? It's got a bit more teeth than it used to because it goes into the, you know, also are you, you know, are you reputable in terms of money? Can we can we see your financial plan? But by and large, it is something that, you know, most of us would pass. Stuff about human rights and foreign policy, it's, it's, it's just not there. Piracy is there. That's the issue. The bare fact that we're into our third month on this, when these things, this owners and directors test normally take a a matter of days or or weeks, shows how sensitive this is. Also, the blanket ban on any kind of comment across the Premier League underlines that fact. I just want to finish quickly with three sort of fundamentals to this dilemma. The Premier League either goes with this Saudi Arabian uh, situation and and lets the takeover through at risk of angering its great partner in its eyes, Qatari-backed being sport. It sides with Qatari-backed being sport at the expense of this takeover and rejects Saudi Arabia, or they find a compromise and that suits hopefully all in their eyes and. Saudi Arabia lifts its being sport blackout and everyone wins from that perspective. Well, I see, isn't it? <laughs> that's, the, that's the one everybody wants. But would geopolitics be set aside for uh, a footballing takeover? Well, look, good, good question. But to be fair, a little bit of B in there. So being sport, what they would say publicly is they want a deal as well. You know, they are saying this piracy has cost us a fortune. We've had to lay off 360 people. We've had to hand back some rights, F1, last year. Um, it has really damaged our business. Because here's the here's the funny thing, or well, it's not funny for them, is the the pirates are being pirated. You know, it's the genie out of the bottle. So there are now there are now offshoots of BLQ and there are set top box available. Uh, you could buy them on the Edgware Road in London. And that is interesting because the Premier League actually um, led a prosecution against someone selling them on the Edgware Road. And he was convicted uh, last year. So it, it has got out there, the piracy. And uh, I think BM would welcome a ruling or a move on Saudi's part to, one, really crack down on uh, piracy in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But but I think one of the key things that nearly everybody wants, US government, European Commission, our government, is for Saudi to open up its courts um, so that anyone that has a problem with intellectual property uh, in Saudi Arabia has some sort of legal recourse. Because that at the moment, that's not the case. The Premier League have tried nine times, nine times to prosecute, to, 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 you know, to, to stop BLQ in Saudi Arabia. And no law firm will take them on. So there's 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 an obvious compromise. You know that would satisfy, I think, the Premier League. They'd love that. 
It was satisfied Newcastle United fans. They get their owner. You know, th- th- there is a deal to be done here. It just, as you said in your question, it does require Saudi Arabia to give a bit. Matt, the ultimate diplomat, thank you very much indeed. Uh, You've more than earned your corn and um, we really appreciate your time as ever. No problem. Now then, there's a very special interview running on The Athletic today. A man we talked about pretty much relentlessly over the space of two decades. We don't speak about him quite as much anymore, but he's still just as big a name. That name is Arsene Wenger. Our reporter, our writer, our esteemed colleague, Amy Lawrence, uh, has spoken to him for this piece. Amy, tell us a little bit about your exclusive piece with Monsieur Wenger. Well, I'm probably biased, but uh, it was a fantastic pleasure to hear him speak again. I felt for the best part of 20 years, it was quite a lot of an education to just listen to us and talk about football and life. Um, And in his new role with FIFA uh, as a chief of football development, as he is now, he's still got those classic, uh, interesting global views on life, the universe, everything, and in particular football. Clearly, he took on the job in November and whatever he had in mind to put his talent to has changed direction a bit because of what has happened to football with this hiatus and the idea that football as we know it is a little bit different and probably will be for some time. So tried to get a sense from him of how he feels um, football is going to look going forward. And I think most tellingly, his concern was he expects the strong to get stronger and the weak to get weaker. Maybe that gap between the two uh, to extend across football as a whole and trying to find ways around that to keep some form of level playing field is one of the things that he is going to be talking to people within FIFA about. Mm, That's interesting because... He talked a lot while he was Arsenal manager about things like financial doping and the gap between the wealthy clubs and and the less wealthy clubs. What you're suggesting is he thinks that's going to be exacerbated as a result of this crisis. Yeah, I mean, in in typical Wenger fashion, I mean, there's not many people in football who would be talking about what the Central European Bank is predicting and and so on. But but he he explained that... um, while there's going to be obviously a, a, a big drop this year with what's going on in the world, um, he says that by next year, the predictions are for those kind of uh, losses to level out, really. And because of that, I think he feels football at the highest level is always going to attract um, big uh, revenue streams. That may be the kind of big problems that are obvious when you don't have uh, fans, you don't have tickets and we haven't had games uh, are, are things that are going to be overcome more quickly at the highest level but I think that the problem that worries him tremendously and quite rightly so is where that leaves lower league clubs where that leaves in international football the smaller countries where that leaves women's football youth football where you know the, the financial support to keep those elements of the game going strong uh, is, is quite possibly going to take a serious hit Many of our audience will want to hear about his thoughts on Arsenal, but he's been very clear since leaving the club that he's now just a fan and doesn't want to talk about uh, the club specifically. However, he has spoken to you about the return of the Premier League, and I think he had some particularly interesting views on that. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's um, uh, still so close to his heart and there's no question he's kind of counting down to watch those games again. And we spoke just about how it was not having any football. I couldn't imagine Arsene Wenger not watching football. And um, (laughs) quite rightly, he said it was a bit of a void, just not not so much not having games, but all the stuff that's around it. He said like overnight, you're not anticipating, you're not analysing afterwards, you're not reacting to what you're seeing in games. But the, the fact that football is... Returning is fantastic. The fact that football is returning without fans is something that has clearly affected what he thinks. And 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 he he said, having watched the Bundesliga and the matches there, that uh, in his words, you realise that football without fans is not real. I don't want you to give too much more away, but could you just quickly touch on a very important issue that he would have, I'm sure, raised with you, and that's the subject of racism. It's something that Wenger, if you remember, going way way back to say, for example. Uh, when he first picked a team that had no English players in it. And it was quite controversial at the time. And people were genuinely quite upset in some quarters. And he was quite astounded by that because for Wenger, you know, passports, uh, any kind of sort of distinctions to, to put people in boxes, it, it, it's just, it doesn't really seem to enter his thinking. I think in many ways he feels that football's ability to pick people on talent, on merit, to be some sort of a meritocracy is a really, really good example. 
he said that football can show the way to the rest of society how we should behave. Please, please go and read Amy's interview with Arsene Wenger on The Athletic. Well worth it, as is all of her coverage. I just want to ask you one final question, Amy. Um, you and I interviewed Arsene Wenger a, a while ago uh, at an event where he hinted for the first time that he would be at peace if he didn't manage in club football again. From speaking to him today, as he's getting his teeth into one of the top jobs in world football at FIFA, is this the path he's on now? And is the dugout and Arsene Wenger uh, done, essentially? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I I would hate to bet with any certainty that it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that candle will always burn for him and uh, and his capacity to be uh, a, an inspiring manager of footballers is going to be there for as long as he can think clearly and have good ideas, which, you know, I hope will be for a long time to come. I definitely feel like it's FIFA's gain. I think maybe it's it's been good for him to have a break from the intensity of football management and try something else. He can't really bear to be not in the game. That wouldn't work for him. That interview is live on The Athletic. Give it a read. Amy has done an excellent job as ever. And we can hear a little bit of Arsene Wenger speaking to Amy now. What can football bring to society at a time when we've had a worldwide crisis as a lot of problems? What what do you love about football that you think will help people to have it back? What football could... Uh, I think football could, could uh, uh, be show the way to the rest of a society, how we should behave. Uh, first, we speak a lot about racism now, and I think uh, uh, football is based on merit only, not on who you are, where you come from, and how you look. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's maybe... Uh, uh, a good way to to teach the world how uh, uh, we should behave and sport sport in general is a great leader in that. Right, that's it. Make sure you subscribe and download the Athletic app if you haven't already. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>